0: Good morning, everyone. There are a couple things coming around. Um, please let me know if you don't get both of them. Dan's helping to just pass them out. One is just some notes for today. Um, I'm not sure how much we're going to get through, so I tried to type some somewhat copious notes in case we don't get through it all, that it's it's all there. So, um, Secondly is an article um, which, which came out of the Christian Research Journal which addresses the issue of homosexual rights, specifically with regard to... Um, legal marriage, and so forth. So that's the second article. If you haven't been here the past couple weeks, we had another article. We'll have a couple copies in the back here at the end. I've got a couple up here. If you need them, come, come get one from me. That um, addresses more how to just respond to some of the cultural objections to it. So anyway, if you're looking for more information, like I said, please see Dan or please see myself um, before you leave. Um, how many of you guys have been here the past, or at least one of the past three weeks? Is this Okay. So most of us, here, are good. This, as you guys know, is a five-week seminar. So we're just going to spend five weeks kind of addressing different sides of the issue of homosexuality, how to kind of critically and biblically think through it. The first three weeks, uh, Dan Banuelo spoke on kind of the socialization factors of it, what goes on in some of those early years, and some of the uh, agendas maybe that are, that are on the extreme sides, you know, really of both, What I want to do the next two weeks, today and the next Sunday, is number one, today talk about what does the Bible say about it. Uh, One thing that I know Dan has mentioned a couple times and we've had a few conversations about is typically you will hear a uh, revisionist perspective of the Bible, Uh, meaning you will hear a response which says something to the effect of the Bible really doesn't speak conclusively on the issue of homosexuality, or it's so vague, to come to any conclusions is really a bit presumptuous. So at least there should be a moratorium on making decisions. We should kind of hold off and wait, and we're not really sure what the Bible says about it. And so that's kind of what I want to talk about today. Is that true or not, or does the Bible really make any conclusive statements about this issue? Before I jump in, I um, just want to say one thing that I really ap- have appreciated. If you've been here the past three weeks, if you haven't, I'm sorry because you haven't seen sort of the attitude that's been laid down. One thing I really appreciate about Dan, and I'm sure you do as well, is just not only the content that he brings, but the, the attitude in which he brings that content. You know what I mean by that? Dan has a very soft, gentle spirit. There's, there's no anger, resentment, phobia, bitterness that sort of comes from a confusion and unsure about the issue. He's, he's well acquainted with the issue and, and comfortable with it. And there's a lot of love there for all people, of all of all stripes and all confessions and all creeds and so forth. So that's, I really appreciate that about Dan. I want to incorporate that more into my life, how I interact with people, because I really appreciate that about Dan. Why are we addressing this issue? I've heard a couple of people ask that question, why are we addressing it? I think a couple things we could say, two things I'll say. Number one, if you picked up the article from last week, the author Joe Dallas has a really good point. He says, we have not brought up this issue. This issue has been brought up to us. We're simply responding to it. The culture has asked us to change. We have said no, and therefore this is this dialogue that's going on. So we're not simply bringing it up because we think it's the most important thing in the world. We're simply responding to what's going on in our world. And I think that's biblical. I think that's accurate. Are, are you familiar with uh, Cory Tenboom? Do you know who she is? Corey Tenboom was a uh, young Austrian woman who, who lived in Holland during World War II, and the Tenboom family decided to hide Jews in their house uh, while the Nazi campaign was going on. And she had this really interesting prayer. One time when she was in her house and she there was a secret room in the house, a Reed hiding place sometime if you're ever interested in her story. There was a room in which they were hiding these, these Jewish families and she heard these Jewish children playing. And at that moment she said she had just such fear and terror because she thought at any moment the Nazis, the Third Reich, could come by and just take them away. At, at any moment it could happen. And at, it was at that moment that she lifted up this prayer to God. This is on the top of your handout. Lord Jesus, I offer myself... For this time, use me in any way necessary to respond to what is happening to what is around me. You guys, I think that that is what we need to be praying at all times. And if we pray that and if we're critical thinkers, this is one of those issues that comes up and we say, okay, I just need to respond to it in a loving, compassionate, truthful way. So I think, again, that's, that's the, the biggest reason why, why we are responding to this issue. So the goal today is simply to talk about what does the Bible say about it. It is not to uh, malign anybody. It is not to heap a special amount of condemnation on anybody or on any practice. It's not to single out one activity or one sin as being worse than others. It's simply to ask the question, what does the Bible say about this issue? Because that's, I think, a very valid question. So that's the goal. That's what we're going to do. Take a look in your handouts. And uh, again, we will kind of go through this somewhat quickly. If we get too close to the end, we might skip a few parts, but hopefully there's enough information on the handout that'll allow you to kind of go back over it later. Roman numeral one, the context of our conversation, things I'm taking for granted. Number one, I am assuming, letter A, we are all human beings. We are all human beings. Now, this is significant. Let me walk through four things that I'm assuming that I think are very important before we enter this dialogue with other people. What I mean by that is we don't start our classification as people of people as they are a-homosexual, a-heterosexual, or anything. We are first and foremost human beings. And that means made in the image of God and fallen. Fallen from that perfect relationship. Okay, This is a biblical perspective. With all of the Difficulties that come with that great paradox. Image of God and yet fallen and depraved. And all of the consequences that come, that's, that's what we are. And along with that fallenness, there is sexual fallenness. We have sexual potential as well as we have sexual problems. So whatever practices we disapprove of, the first thing we need to remember is there is no place ever to dehumanize anyone. Anyone no matter how much we might disagree, no matter what someone might do, even heinous acts that that might be done. I'm not talking about this issue, but something else. We may never dehumanize another person, regardless. Second thing I'm assuming is that we are all sexual beings. By that I mean male and female. There's been sort of a great uh, changeover in, in, in words today. Sex used to refer to what we are, Gender used to refer to nouns, words. Now, gender refers to people, and sex refers to what we do. I think the old model's better. I think it's more biblical. Sex does not primarily have to do with activity. It has to do with being. For human beings, at least, we are sexual beings, regardless of what we engage in, meaning we are male or female. That's what we are. And so it goes to the core of our soul. So as we talk about it, we have to realize we're talking about our identity, Okay, This is, in a sense, a, a sensitive issue that we're talking about. And then I guess the second point underneath that is we all do have a sexual orientation, an inclination, leanings, as we use our sexuality in different ways. And obviously that's part of what we're talking about today. Third thing I'm assuming, letter C, is that we are all sinners. There is a doctrine which the church has held universally, Roman Catholic eastern orthodox protestant the church universal historically has held to a doctrine of what's called total depravity now that does not mean that you are as bad as you can be it means that the totality of your being mind will emotions uh, every every aspect of what it means to be human is touched or tainted by sin there's no part of you or i which remains unaffected by that great rebellion and the consequences of its sin So every single person is sinful in that sense. So in this sense, in God's eyes, and I think this is appropriate to say, every single one of us is a sexual deviant. Okay, understand what I'm saying. All of us are sexual deviants. Because I'm guessing every single one of us has at least had one inappropriate thought sexually, some lustful thought. If you have, you are a sexual deviant in God's eyes. Why am I saying this? Because there's no place of moral superiority for us, for the follower of Jesus to say, to say, I stand at a place of moral superiority which is higher than yours because of what, whatever activity you're, you're engaged in. Now, it doesn't mean we can't make judgment calls, but I'm, I'm trying to bring some humility to the conversation. Does that make sense? Okay. So again, we just need to be careful about the holier-than-thou attitude. We also need to be careful not to say homosexuality is the worst sin in the world. You know what the worst sin is biblically? You know what Christians have always said the worst sin is? Pride. You know why? Because it's the one thing that can keep you from receiving Christ. Think about it. The only thing required to receive Christ is its opposite, humility. So the one thing which will keep you is pride. That's the only thing. So Christians have always said that's the worst of all possible sins worst consequences on our lives. So we're not saying homosexuality is the worst of all possible sins. So in addition to being human, sexual, sinful creatures, the fourth thing that I'm taking for granted, at least uh, I'm assuming among my listeners, I'm not not thinking everyone here necessarily is, but letter D, we are all Christians. Again, I'm assuming that for my listener, not necessarily every single person who's sitting here. If we are Christians, here's what I mean by that. We do not reject the kingship, the lordship of Jesus. By that I mean we are those who earnestly desire to submit to Jesus' lordship. We believe that Jesus exercises lordship through what he's revealed, the Bible, Scripture. Um, That we want to understand what light Scripture throws upon this issue of homosexuality, and all issues for that matter. And then finally, that we seek God's grace to follow his will, When it can be known That's what I'm assuming That's that's the position I'm coming from So maybe I'm not assuming that from you I'm I'm assuming that as I go Those are my presuppositions So here's our question today Are homosexual partnerships a Christian option? That was a lot, sorry That was just the intro (laughs) I apologize Sometimes I find that I can do 30 minutes And I've only gone through the intro Uh, Hopefully we'll get through a lot of this Rome numeral 2 Where does the Bible speak of homosexuality? What are the key places? Um, And you see them listed there. We're going to go through each one of them, A, B, C, and D. There are a few other passages that I've mentioned in the footnotes. Most of them are referring back to one of these key passages. So there's a few places, like in Peter and Jude and so forth, that will talk about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's not specifically addressing the issue of homosexuality. So these aren't the only places, but these are the key passages Anyway, that makes some sort of evaluative judgment on the topic, okay? So I kind of grouped them in four there anyway. Rome numeral three. A necessary context of the Bible's prohibition of homosexual practice. This, you guys, star this. This is key. This is essential. As you see in letter A there, any negative prohibition that the Bible makes about homosexuality is almost meaningless or at least you won't understand it, unless you understand what the Bible intended for sexuality. Does that make sense? So we have to, before we even enter this subject, you have to at least have a pretty good understanding, nail down the issue. What's the author's intent? Anytime you pick up a book, if you are uh, in school, or if you're just picking up a book, a, a novel, something along those lines, what you're looking for is, what's the author's intent? What's What's intended? What is, what is the meaning here? So that's where I think we have to start with to understand these, don't do this. Well, why not? It's only going to make sense in light of because this is the standard. Here's, here's what we ought to do. So real quickly, let's, let's walk down that. That comes, of course, from Genesis 1 and 2. Um, Genesis 1 affirms the equality of the sexes because, of course, both are made in the image of God. Genesis 2 affirms the complementarity of the sexes. Um, that one complements the other. It's like a puzzle piece fitting together, not just in a physical sense, but in all senses. And I think there are three, at least three, there are probably a lot more, three truths that, that emerge from knowing the author's intent or the Genesis intent, we might say. Number one, the human need for companionship. The standard is it is not good for a man to be alone. That's the standard. Are there exceptions to that? Yes. As you see there, First Corinthians there, there is a uh, exception for singleness. There's, there's the recognition that some people are called to be single, and and the apostle Paul even says that's good, that's okay. It's not a less than. That's, that's acceptable. But it's the exception. The standard is one man, one woman. Likewise. Uh, He goes on to say, I will make a helper suitable for him. Again, go back sometime and read the Genesis account. Look at the language that is used. It's very, very specific to lay down that author's intent for what is intended for us. She was to be his sexual partner, becoming, and here's a keyword that is used three times in a very short space, one flesh. And that one flesh was to have two reasons. Number one, it was to consummate their love. Number two, it was to procreate children that that was sort of the purpose of that. Second truth that emerges from looking at Genesis is God's provision to meet this need for companionship. It wasn't just that there was a need and Adam was told go try to fulfill the need. God said I will I God himself, omniscient, omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful, I will fulfill that need for you. I will meet that need. And so of course in the story the animals are uh, paraded before Adam and it says n- there, were, there was no suitable helper found for him. No one who was a reflection a companion who could be that puzzle piece in a sense. And so there was a special creation necessary. Um, and of course this is sort of the divine surgery under divine anesthesia that we have here in the story. And somehow again however you interpret that passage somehow all the authors telling us how it happened I don't know. Out of Adam came male and female. In some way, in some fashion, out of Adam came the two parts that were intended to work together. At least that's what the author of Genesis is telling us. Um, Adam awoke from his sleep, and he beheld this reflection of himself. It was a compliment to himself. And then God himself brought her to him. This is the picture of if if you've been to a wedding or been in a wedding, um, you know what happens. Typically, the father what? gives away the bride that's why we do that it's the image of in a sense saying this is what will meet your need this desire you have for companionship and all these needs this meets it and it's a picture of god giving it of of him meeting that need rather than us looking for it going around and finding it and as a result number three because of all of this this is why the word uh, for this reason for these reasons what the institution of marriage that's the Genesis plan. That's the author's intent. Again, think of it this way. How many of you in here know about engines? I mean, if I brought a car in front of you and popped up the hood, you would know it all? Okay. I would know nothing. Um, have you, For those of you like me, have you ever, like, opened the hood of an engine and someone said, you know, usually if it's like a girl to do you know what's going on? And you're just like, you know, it'd be like popping over a computer. It's meaningless to me. I know nothing about what's in there. I don't know how to change my I can check my oil. I don't know how to change it. If someone said... Which part is missing, Brent? Find the part that is misplaced. What would I do? Would I monkey around and figure, well, I'll, I'll find a way until it can you know, move forward a couple feet? What would I do? How would I find out the, the way in which all the pieces should go together? Okay, I would find either a mechanic who knows the system, and the only reason that the mechanic knows this, the specs of it is Okay, he's been trained. Basically, he's been given sort of that authorial intent. Here's what the original engineer intended, right? So however we go about making sense of it, it always goes back to however the original engineer. Exact, that's what the Genesis 1 and 2 is about. It's, it's saying, here are the engineering plans for humanity's flourishing. Now, we know very quickly, Genesis 3, flourishing will be impossible because the system's broken. Okay, But here's still the intent. So we have that, and we have sort of, again, that, that great paradox there. Listen to John Stott's word here. He says, Even the inattentive reader will be struck by the three references to flesh. This is flesh of my flesh. They will become one flesh. We may be certain that this is deliberate. It's not an accident. It teaches that heterosexual intercourse in marriage is more than a union. I love this. It is a kind of Reunion. That's what the author of Genesis is, is trying to get us to see. It's not a union of these two alien people who are, I'm from Mars and she's from Venus. It's the idea that this was the original one who was torn apart and now brought back together. And marriage is the bringing together of what was torn. That's what the author, at least, is intending to say. Again, that, that's a pretty rich picture. That's big. Take a look at letter B here. I think as a Christian, anytime I'm asked, um, "What do you think about homosexuality?" I I was uh, in a CSU classroom just a I don't know a month ago or so, just asked to come and represent evangelical Christianity. And so I'm you know just saying here's kind of what we believe, and here's here's what it means to follow Jesus and so forth. And one of the first questions was, "What do you think about homosexuality?" And I this is the way I, I always respond because I think it's accurate and it, it's it's helpful. Is I say, well. Our conviction about sexuality is based upon Jesus' words in Matthew 19.4. Jesus said, author's intent. Now, Jesus was asked about uh, divorce and breaking up and that sort of thing. And he, and he didn't, he didn't kind of go into a big dialogue. He just said, well, what's the author's intent? Um, in the beginning, he said, have you not read? In the beginning, God made them male and female. That was his intent. What, what God has joined, what he has intended, we ought not break apart. That was Jesus' simple answer. Now, there's a lot of other more detailed aspects we have to look at, but what's my view of homosexuality? Simply, it is that the standard is one man, one woman in a monogamous relationship for a lifetime. Anything which deviates from that, unless there's an exception, singleness, a few cases for divorce in the Bible, it's a deviant action. Now, why do I point to that? Because that's not my opinion, that's what Jesus said. I'm simply telling you what Jesus said, and I think he's a good authority on the issue. Okay? It's also helpful because it's not me saying, here's my opinion, here's your opinion, and we just butt heads. If you want to slander and call someone arrogant and narrow-minded and bigoted, tell Jesus that. Because I'm simply telling you what Jesus has said. And as a follower of his, I have to. I have to believe that if I'm a follower. All this to say that's the most important thing for a follower of Jesus. What do you think about, about homosexuality? Jesus said, author's intent, one man, one woman. Ipso facto, anything which deviates, unless there's an exception, must be wrong. Imperfect. Does that make sense? And again, feel free to, you guys ask questions as we go, so I'm not sure how much time we'll have at the end, so feel free to jump in. Okay, that's even a bigger part of the introduction. You thought we were done. What does the Bible say about it? We've looked a little bit at that. Roman numeral four. The stories of Sodom. Okay, we're getting, Now, there are a few different stories. There's also Gabia mentioned there, which is sort of a parallel account where these uh, men come to a city. They're not angels, as in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, but these uh, men come. They stay with an elderly man, um, and similar situation. City comes, says, you know, give us, give us those people to, to uh, know them, to have sex with them. They don't, and it's a similar type of situation. I'm just looking at this one. You can look at both of them. How many of you know the story of Sodom? Okay, is this, so it's not totally foreign... Again, for the sake of time, I don't want to read the whole thing. The essential story is God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I am going to judge this city. Okay, so he says this ahead of time. And then there's this sort of long dialogue. Abraham goes down to the city. God, for several reasons mentioned in the text, wants Abraham to see this. I think largely because God is shaping an entire nation and Abraham's the start of it. He wants him to understand how serious God is about living rightly. And again, that says that in the text. That's not just my opinion. Takes Abraham down there. He's going to destroy the city. And there's this incident where uh, these, these angels who come to carry out God's will, this message, um, meet Lot, who is uh, relative to Abraham in the city, goes into Lot's house. The men of the city, old and young, see this. They, they come to the house, knock on the door. Lot answers and they say, give us your men that we might know them. And he says, do not do this horrible, detestable thing. Um, They have come under my house. In the ancient world, the Semitic world, um, hospitality is a big deal. If someone comes under your house, in your tent, you have to protect them by virtue of your own life. You must lay down your own life. So it's a big deal who you eat with. It's not like today. And so he says, do not do this wicked thing. And then he says this bizarre statement. "Um, I I have daughters who have never known a man. Take them and know them. Um, And they said, who do you think you are? Now you're judging us. You came in as an alien, and now you're judging us. We're going to do worse to you than what we were going to do to them. The angels grab the man, pull him inside the house, strike the man on the outside with blindness. They're not able to get in. The family leaves. The city is destroyed. That's sort of a super quick paraphrase of the story of what's going on. There's a big debate as to what is the sin of Sodom, and you see that under letter A there. And here are the different options that people have proposed. Is it homosexual practice? Number two, is it general wickedness? This is mentioned in the previous chapter of the city's general wickedness. Number three, is it the rape of the guest? So it's not homosexual actions per se, but it's homosexual gang rape. Is it, number four, the desire to cohabitate with angels? Uh, There's a reference in Jude that people will point out to say they they long for strange flesh. Well, that means angelic beings rather than simply uh, homosexual activity. And then number five, is it inhospitality? Are they being judged because of the way in which this city broke the ancient law of hospitality? If you want to kind of make notes on any of those, number five and number three, by the revisionist, again, more more liberal perspective, those are their options. Those ones that they would say, the Bible is really arguing that what's going on here is inhospitality and or gang rape. That's what God is condemning. Not simply homosexuality, but it's more three and five. Letter B. Again, you see a couple people there who hold to that their books. You can look at their literature, read it. I've read some of it. Um, Here's their basic argument from this passage. Number one, yada is the Greek word for know. And if you look in the passage, it says, bring them out to us that we may yada them, that we may know them. Well here's the argument. Yada occurs 943 times in the Old Testament, which the whole Testament of course is written in Hebrew. Only 10 of them of 943 refer to, to physical intercourse. okay? So we're looking at what are the chances that this word refers to physical intercourse versus some other way of knowing. Therefore it would be better to translate it so that we may, so that we might interrogate them. This is the idea that, the sin of Sodom is is not hom is not the desire to cohabitate in a homosexual way. It was the idea that they were breaking this law. That these men came into their city and they said, "We don't know who they are. Are they are they going to try to attack us? Are they spies? We want to interrogate them." Well, that would break the customary law of someone's coming to your house and you have to protect them. So that is what the suggestion is. Okay, that's sort of the basic argument. Um, a second way to look at it is the sin of Sodom was. Uh, not monogamous homosexual practice which uh, according to this view there's nothing wrong with but it's the gang rape of lots guest again and or the desire to cohabitate with angels one of those two any questions about that position i want to respond to that but any questions about that about those two ideas do they make sense anyway do you you kind of get them here's a response here i think is a a couple reasons why those are not good options of interpretation. Number one, under letter C, lots offer to the men of the city to yada the women instead of the men makes most sense if there is a sexual connotation to the word. Meaning, what sense would it be if he said, uh, "I want to interrogate those men," and he said, "No, no, no, don't do that. These women have never been interrogated before. Interrogate them."
1: <laughs> you see what I mean?
0: I mean, seriously, that, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So, given the text, it does does it fit? Does it make sense, or is it sort of odd? Does it sort of stand out, and you go, "That doesn't. Why would he say that?" Also, what many of the proponents of this view don't tell you is, even though there's 900 plus times this word appears, and only 10 refer to sexual intercourse, six of the 10 are all in the Book of Genesis. Okay, so again, you've got to realize the author is using this word a lot no to refer to sexuality. And two of them are in this story, that very case. Um, No, we want to know them. No, my daughters have never known any man. Know them. Okay, so, and clearly that seemed, there seems to be a sexual connotation to the know my daughters. My daughters have not known. So that seems to be a better explanation of that. Number two, the acts of gang rape and or desiring human slash angelic intercourse could not have been the cause of God's judgment on Sodom. You know why? Because God decided to destroy Sodom long before that incident, didn't he? Remember? The angels came to the city bringing the message of judgment. He did not decide to judge after they were there. So that option, again, it's it's an impossibility. It can't be the correct way to interpret that passage. It's clearly his decision to judge it came long before their arrival or their visitation so it could not have those two options just don't work even though people again will oftentimes suggest that they do a third reason why i think this is a bad option is if you are a follower of jesus if you believe the new testament is authoritative in what it says then the new testament comments on the sin of sodom and does identify it at least in part as sexual sins again, example book of Jude that we'll get to here in a minute. In fact, I think there's a footnote on this page or the next for you there and what that passage is. So the New Testament does also comment on it. If you accept that as authoritative, that's at least a, a pretty good argument. Letter D. What do we know about the sin of Sodom as described in the Bible? And let's kind of run pretty quickly through this. Number one, the sin of Sodom was, quote, indeed great, and their sin was exceedingly grave. In fact, there were not even 10 righteous people found in the city. Now if you think about that, if that includes Sodom, if that includes Lot and his family, that means aside from Lot and his family, there were not even maybe three or four righteous people in the city. Number two, the purpose of the judgment was to, as I mentioned earlier, it was to be a warning to uh, Abraham um, as this fledgling nation is, is founded and formed, again, Second Peter and Jude 1. It's to me an example to those who live ungodly lives thereafter. Number three, 2 Peter 2. Listen to this. Listen to the way in which the New Testament authors talk about the sin of Sodom. This might clear it up for us, what was the sin. 2 Peter 2 says, Lot was, quote, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. Lot, by what he saw and heard, okay, saw and heard, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. These people were, quote, those who indulged the flesh in its corrupt desires and despised authority. Okay, so listen to those descriptives to help us. If it, if it is unclear from Genesis itself, these should at least help us clear it up a little bit. And then Jude 1-7 describes Sodom's actions as gross immorality and going after strange flesh. Now, again, some people say, well, strange flesh must, means, must mean angelic. Uh, because in the context of Jude, he has just been speaking about angels who, who left their proper abode, he says, meaning who sort of forgot what their job was. The word angel means messenger. They forgot that they were messengers. They sort of thought they were the message. This is referring to fallen angels. And then later he talks about this. And so the argument is, well, clearly what they were judged for was desiring cohabitation with angels. That's what's wrong. Again, a problem is there's no indication that these men knew they were angels, is there? Even Lot himself, as far as we know, wasn't even aware these were angels. So as far as they know, these are just men. In fact, the text calls them men once they're in the city. So would God condemn them for doing something that they didn't know they were doing wrong? It's, it's, it's unlikely to me anyway. I can't see that he would. That doesn't seem to be coherent with this character. So here's a summary of the biblical text talking about at least that first story that we often talk a lot about, Sodom and Gomorrah. The sin of Sodom was some kind of activity that was grave, it was ongoing, it was lawless, it was sensuous activity that Lot saw and heard which tormented him as he witnessed it day after day in which the inhabitants indulged the flesh in corrupt desires by going after strange flesh. Now, This is my opinion. To me, this speaks of those original options, you know, in hospitality, uh, all those different things, as it's speaking of homosexual practice rather than other things. That seems to be a fair-minded reading of the text. Again, I I have biases, sure, but that's, I think, a fair-minded reading of it. I'm trying to be even-handed with it, I think, anyway. Um, a verse that many point to in order to prove that it wasn't, though, that conclusion, that it was actually the uh, inhospitality or something, is what's mentioned there in your, in your outline, Ezekiel 16. Usually, though, when you see this, it's only quoted in part. Usually they will, they will put the period earlier than the actual context should allow for. Ezekiel 16 says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Okay, This is, this is what Sodom was in trouble for. She and her daughters had arrogance. Okay, that's bad. I mean, do you wipe out an entire city simply for that? Um, abundant good and careless ease. Well, I mean, that's, I don't know, that's, that's American in a lot of ways. I mean, do you really wipe out an entire nation because of that? Um, but she did not help the poor and the needy. Okay, that's worse. That's certainly something that, that we are called to do. But again, do you destroy an entire city simply for that? Maybe it's adding to the pile. Thus, they were haughty and committed, oh, here's a word, abominations. Okay, that's a word that there is capital punishment for. Committed abominations before me, therefore I removed them when I saw it. Here's, here's the problem with this passage, again, that is us- usually quoted in part, not the abominations part. If you go back to the Levitical law, meaning the, the Jewish law, what things were, were capital crimes? Was inhospitality a capital crime? Capital offense, it was not. Okay, it was bad. There were there were expectations. A person was considered uh, immoral for not doing it. It was not a capital offense. Homosexual activity was a capital offense. So again, what makes most sense in the text? Well, it it would be strange if if God were to require their lives for a non-capital offense, and this is the Old Testament, but not for a capital offense. Does that make sense? Again, just looking at the text, it seems as though the best explanation is homosexual practice. And that's what's being talked about or referred to in this passage. Okay? Any questions on that, on the story of Sodom before we move on? I'm going to move on to, like I said, I sort of grouped the four different uh, scriptural passages. Any questions about Sodom? Okay. Um, number two, and that leads us into pretty well the uh, Levitical texts. As I mentioned, the what does the Old Testament consider capital offense or not capital offense? That's what the book of Leviticus is about. Take a look in Leviticus 18.22. It says this, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. This is toavah, is the Hebrew word, meaning an abomination. Also, you shall not have intercourse with any animal, to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Uh, Likewise, Leviticus 20.13. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They uh, shall surely be put to death. Their blood guilt is upon themselves. So here's the question. It's it's the word toavah. This word tova, here's, here's sort of the argument, again, with the revisionist side who says, no, it's not talking about that. It's not speaking of, of this issue as you think it is. There are three components of the Old Testament law. There's the moral law. This is sort of moral codes. Now, sometimes these bleed over. Um, there is the ceremonial law. This has to do with ritual, vestments that you wear, liturgy that you speak. This is the Old Testament I'm speaking of. As a, as a priest would go to the temple, that sort of thing. Ceremonial aspects of sacrifice and so forth. And then there's the civil law. That's as you interact with your government. Okay, These are the three parts of law in the Old Testament. The revisionist or sort of the liberal perspective is this, that these prohibitions on homosexuality refer to not the moral law, but the ceremonial law. To say it is toavah, meaning uh, abominable... Uh, prohibition okay there's a prohibition on it means ceremonially there is a prohibition one ought not act in this way due to ceremonial reasons religious worship reasons not the other view and so they will point to the fact and they say well the old testament also says picking up sticks on the sabbath is toavah same word surely picking up sticks on the sabbath is not that big of a deal Therefore, homosexual activity is not that big of a deal. In fact, doesn't the New Testament say Jesus freed us from the law? Again, we don't have to hold to that. That was Old Testament ceremonial law. It also said that a man couldn't have sex with a menstruating woman, uh, that, that he must be cleansed first, then he could worship, that he couldn't do this, he couldn't do that, and he must then be cleansed before ceremonial law. And so the argument is that's what this is saying. Just sort of as a side note, it's interesting that those who make this argument don't go the other way and say, you know, they say breaking the Sabbath isn't a big deal, so homosexuality isn't a big deal. It's interesting that they don't say homosexuality is a big deal, therefore breaking the Sabbath is a big deal. Again, I guess you could go either way, but it's interesting they choose that one side. Here's, I think, a problem with that. This command to abstain from homosexual practice, number one, it's not directed toward just priests. It's not just before you go into the temple. It's directed to all of Israel, and you see that in 18.2. All of Israel, this applies to. Further, this cannot merely be ritual or ceremonial purity. You know why? Because of the most important rule of interpreting your Bible, context. Look at where this statement, do not lie with a male as you would lie with a woman. Look at the context in which it's couched. Look at what's said here. Um, the Toa of homosexuality in this passage is between adultery, 18 verse, chapter 18, verse 20, child sacrifice, 1821, and bestiality, 1823. So if you accept that, here's what you have to hear the author saying. If you have homosexual practices, or if you have, uh, if you have sex with an animal, or if you kill your child, wash your hands before you come to church. Is that really what's being said here? Clearly not. Clearly not. So again, I don't think that's a fair reading of the text. This phrase is couched with bestiality, adultery, and killing your child as a sacrifice to another god, all of which are roundly condemned in Scripture again and again. So you've really got to do some gymnastics to to take this one thing out of this Toa Va text and say, it doesn't have to do with morality. It has to do with washing up before you go to church. You, you've really got to do a lot of work to be able to say that. Okay, done with the Old Testament. Nothing new. Any questions, though, before we go on or comments? All right. Paul's statements in Romans 1, again, for the sake of time, um, I won't read over that, but you've got it there. The basic argument that Paul gives in Romans 1, he's talking about the way in which people have gone back to, remember Genesis, the intent? Here's the way God intended things to work. This is evilness. This is basically his thesis. Evil is to invert what God has done. And so he says things like, rather than worshiping the creator, they worship his creation. Rather than do this, they do that. It's this, it's this picture of turning things on their head. So he's using this sort of natural author's intent, look at the the schematics of the engine type argument, and to say that's the way to figure out what evil does is, in a sense, invert it all. And he uses as one of those illustrations. He gets down to the point where he says one, one of the significant ways that people do this is they grab one of the most beautiful, powerful things in the world, sexuality, and God intended it this way, and they invert it. And this is where he mentions homosexual practice both lesbian and gay practice he mentions both as a woman would be with a woman as a man would be with a man it's that inversion of the author's intent again understand that as you read through that passage there so let me make a couple observations here the specific progression that leads to god's wrath again as you look throughout their people suppress the truth it's not that they're ignorant of it it's like they put it in a cage they push it down they shove it under the table it's obvious to them why because we're made in God's image and our nature sort of lends toward a certain course in life and he's saying they they know it by simply being human beings rational human beings they suppress that truth they exchange God's truth for a lie they give their hearts over to impurity and then he says God God in a sense allows that to to have its day um, he allows their impurity to sort of rule them it's almost like Again, there's sort of debate on what exactly this text means, but almost the idea that God removes his hand of restraint and says, all right, if that's what you want, run with it. And then there's this natural reaping of the consequences. And here's here's the basic uh, response to this, okay? The passage says um, people, here's what's wrong, here's what's being condemned, people who exchange natural feelings for unnatural feelings, natural functions for unnatural functions. That's what Paul says. The the other side responds with this. They say, well, what Paul is saying here, I'm not disagreeing with it. I think it's 100% true. However, what Paul is saying is that those who are constitutionally homosexual, meaning those who are naturally homosexual, for them to exchange their natural function that would be wrong so for a homosexual person who is constitutionally homosexual to try to be reoriented okay through psychotherapy or whatever means that would be immoral in fact it would be placing that person under god's curse because what paul's saying here according to this perspective is as long as you do with what is natural to you that's right but if you go against what's natural that's what's wrong and as you see there, that's, that's what I mentioned here, the constitutional homosexuality argument. So Paul's uh, not referring to those who, um, whom homosexuality is natural. This argument does not work for five reasons. Let me quickly walk through them. And again, this is a common one that is given. This is probably the most, aside from the Sodom and Gomorrah one, this is the most common objection used by the revisionist, more liberal side. Here's the problem with that. Number one, and this is kind of more of what we'll get into next week. We'll talk about just some of the reasonable arguments. Number one, the jury is still out on scientific evidence, meaning are some people, quote, unquote, born with it? Um, There is not enough evidence to say one way or the other. Is it possible that there could be some biological factor? Sure, it's certainly possible, but we haven't found it. And again, as Dan talked about the last three weeks... What we see a lot of, at least, are some significant sociological factors for it. But nevertheless, there just is not enough evidence. Number two, even if people were, quote-unquote, born with it, to conclude by this that people ought to practice it commits the naturalistic fallacy. You can call it the is-ought fallacy. You know what that is? It says this is the case, therefore it ought to be the case. What's the problem with that? Think about morality. Moral laws, the ones, a lot of the ones I'm thinking of, basically speak against almost everything that's natural, don't they? I'm hungry, so I'm going to walk down to the cafe and I'm going to grab some food behind the counter and walk out. No, you have to pay for it. Well, no, but this is natural. I'm hungry. Oh, there are still expectations about what I must do. Okay? Someone cuts me off on the road on the way to church and I pull over and punch them out. Okay, That's natural. I want to do that. A part of me wants to do that. <laughs> the law says, no. The law says, Brent, you may not do that. Right? So think about this. Simply the fact that something is, I mean, there's no conclusion to it. Therefore, what? Nothing. That, that leads to nothing. There's, there's actually some evidence out there that people with, with an XYY chromosome have an inclination toward violence. Okay, there, there's actually studies out there that do lean toward that, give us good information about that. Ought we therefore conclude that we should not restrain that person from violent behavior? According to this line of reasoning, we ought not restrain that person. Hey, they are born with it. That's natural for them. Don't, don't interfere. God made them that way. It's natural. Well, clearly not. All law goes against what's natural, quote-unquote natural, and says, no, there's still an expectation. So is does not lead to ought ever, ever, ever. You can never get an ought from an is. You have to get it from somewhere else. So that's one of the biggest problems there. Number three, the idea of constitutional homosexuality is totally foreign to the text. This would be like saying, you know, Paul's saying, if if you burn toward the same sex, don't you dare burn toward the opposite sex. Is that really what he's saying there in the passage? And again, as the next point uh, is number four, this kind of brings it a little closer to home. If all who have a desire for the same sex do so naturally, who in the world is this verse applying to? Who's hopping into bed with someone that they have no inclination or desire to have sex with? I mean, who does that? As far as I know, no one. I mean, maybe you might say, well, he's talking about bisexuality, but you still have the desire. What kind of person would ever have sex with someone, unless they're forced to, if they have no desire? I mean, think about it. Who in the world is Paul talking to? As far as I've come in contact with, no one. So clearly, Paul does not have in mind constitutional homosexuality versus a heterosexual person having sex with a male who doesn't want to and has no desire to. And then finally, number five, Paul was not unclear by what he meant by unnatural. This is the clincher. This is the strongest argument, I think, from the text. The word that Paul is speaking of is not desire. He's talking about function. He's talking about activity, not inclination. Does that make sense? He's not condemning a homosexual desire in this text. He's condemning the action, the function. And what he says, he doesn't say people have have changed a natural desire for an unnatural desire. Primarily, he's talking about we've changed a natural function. He's talking about plumbing, the way in which a male, female come together and fit. He's saying that's natural. And to exchange a natural function for another natural function, that's the problem. So he's not talking about this changing something internally inside you. He's just talking about the pragmatic function of sexual practice. That's what he's talking about there in Romans 1. And he says that comes from a degrading passion, but he's primarily speaking of function, not inclination or intent. Um, Two other passages here, and um, I just want to go through this real fast so we can have a little bit of time for just dialogue and questions if you guys have it. Two other passages that talk about it that are at least helpful to know some of the technical language that's used there. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. These are two other places that Paul addresses it. And I'll read it real fast. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. Now, the um, well, I'll talk about what those words are right here in a second. Nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor violers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Second place where he gives this sort of list type example of saying that which is contrary to following God is 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. Realizing the fact that the law was not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, For those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Now that big long list, there are two words which which are common in these texts and you see them listed below in letter C. These two words have very precise meanings in the ancient Greek world. The first one, as you see there, uh, refers back to the First Corinthians pa- uh, passage, which the translators translated as effeminate. the The word is malakoi. This it literally means soft to the touch. It's it's a reference to, to the one who would be engaged in a homosexual activity, who would be on the receptive side, who would be receiving. Um, oftentimes, many I think the NIV translates it as male prostitutes. Again, meaning the one who would offer himself as a receiver. Okay? And in the ancient world, they were considered the uh, effeminate. That's why the translation is effeminate. They are the receptive of the two. Okay? But he also uses the other word. Why is this important? Because you can't say, well, he's just talking about prostitution. He's just saying, don't, don't do male prostitution. Because he also mentions the other side. And that's that other word there. Arsenacoite is literally male in bed. And it was used as an expression to describe the one who took the active role in homosexual intercourse. These are the primary passages you guys that address the issue of homosexuality. So here are here are the things that I think don't work. It doesn't work to say the Bible really doesn't speak on the issue of homosexuality. Now, you might come to a different conclusion, but you at least can't say that. It's it's really silent, we're just not sh- it, it's so horribly unclear that we can't come to any conclusion. Nor, I don't think, can you say Paul had in mind these ideas like constitutional homosexuality, which, as far as I know, is a fairly recent idea in the history of the world. The best explanation of all of these texts, and again, this is just a survey. You guys, there are, I mentioned on the bottom of your page, there are some books. If you're interested, come up and look. I mean, here's one book entitled The Bible and Homosexual Practice, and it's text and hermeneutics how to interpret them, and it goes through ancient Sumerian and Egyptian texts, what's the ancient view on homosexuality, biblical text. There's so much out there. The Bible does address this, and it was addressed in the ancient world. So I think the best explanation of all of this information here, and again, this is just a skimming on the surface of it, is that the Bible comes down fairly conclusively that homosexual practice is prohibited. It's, why? Because it's not God's ideal. It goes against the original intent. Again, always keep that in mind. That's why it's wrong. Because it goes against how God knows we flourish best. That, I think, is a biblical argument. I think it's a sound argument. Ideas, thoughts, any responses? or Yeah. Pastor Brown, thank you. We
1: appreciate all the research you oh, have. Thank you. Right, uh, 1 Corinthians 6.11, that's really a neat
0: encouragement verse. But Paul goes on to say that some of you were there now that yes. people are in the church. Yes. Walked away from that last no, that's a great point. Um, that's something that uh, you ruined it because I was going to save it for next week, but we'll oh, talk sorry. about it. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, no, it, it does go on in the passage to say, and this is one of the you know, wonderful things. I've heard Dan say this before. Are ex-gay ministries unique to 21st century America? No, the Bible actually assumes ex-gays ex-homosexuality, because it says, it lists all these things and mentions people who practice homosexuality, and then it says, and such were some of you, but what? Jesus. And it gets to the solution, I think, right? And that's that's an easy way to state it. It's obviously easier said than done. The Bible recognizes that sexual uh, reorientation, whatever you want to call it, is possible, or at least abstinence, celibacy, something along those lines is possible and good and intended. In that case, thank you for pointing that out. Actually, seriously, yeah.
1: Well, I think that same verse is real um, good at pointing out that that's not the only sins.
0: <laughs> or yes, there are. Uh, it's right up
1: there. You know, coveting something is right up there with that same that same that same verse, as well as idolatry and brokenness.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's a, that's a wonderful point. And uh, again, that's why I wanted to be really careful at the beginning you know, to point out and say, please do not walk away thinking that, that we single out one sin and say, this is up here. If you suffer from this, man, you're, just, you're on a lower ground. That is absolutely untrue biblically. Um, you know, important phrase for us to remember is, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. <laughs> we all approach the cross on the exact same ground. So yeah. Michael. There responses, that something about, you know, you really shouldn't interpret those two words or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the, the most common responses that I've heard, which again I don't think work given the way in which the word word was used in the ancient Greek, they they will point to the uh for instance in the first Corinthians passage, the effeminate malakoi, they will say that refers to it's a soft to the touch, it'll refer to children. You know, so it's really uh you know, it's pederasty that it's talking about. It's having sex with underage people that is the problem. But again, the word was simply re- used many times, the majority of the time, to refer to male homosexuality. In the ancient world, oftentimes a, a, a slave would have to submit himself to that sort of thing and they were you know, considered effeminate. And that word was used to refer to them because they're the receiver. Yeah? In Paul's talking
1: God's frustration and anger because the people wouldn't follow what um, he was wanting them, and he gave them over to their lustful nature or mm-hmm. their sin. Do you think that in that passage uh, that those sins could um passed from the father to the sons? In other words, you know that happened long ago, but you know, um, do you know what I'm trying to say?
0: I think so. Are you saying could he have in mind the way in which? He gave them over was in a sense allowing uh, sort of sins of the father to affect the children just in a natural way. My father's an alcoholic, and I say I'll never do it, but then I start drinking that type of idea. Am I correctly meaning what you mean? Yeah, Yeah,
1: I think um, the way I understand it is you know, the prayers that God has for us that Jesus had in the the past are for the future. And could you Mm -hmm. interpret the sins in the past? Uh, Mm that some, some of the people that were committing these sins in the same way, their future generations would commit that same sin.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I guess it would be an argument for, are they born that way?
0: Mm. Okay, okay. I think I see what you're saying. Um, again, I don't, I don't think Paul has in mind born with it, uh, at least as a natural function you know, again, is, is that the case? Is there such a thing? There might be. But in a sense, it's a moot point because that doesn't necessarily, you don't get the ought from the is, you know, thing. Um, but I don't think Paul had that in mind because Paul refers to functionality versus inclination. As far as in this text, he's saying, we've exchanged natural functions. That's the problem. That's what God condemns. Does that address, I'm not sure if I'm understanding the question. <laughs> answer
1: for that question. It's just something that mulls in my mind. You know, it just mulls in my mind because um, you know there is a passage that says that the sins of the father will be passed on to the sons. Yes. And so does that in- exclude some sins or is it mm-hmm. all the sins that yeah. be passed
0: down? No, I think that is. I would interpret that passage in in a very natural way, meaning the same way that you know people like Dan who experience in counseling settings. Um, people who who struggle with issues you always ask the question, what happened early in their life? And again, whether it be alcoholism or you know sexuality you know whatever it might come up as so many of those are a result of what happened to us at some point early on typically. And that is I think the primary way in which the sins of the father are visited on the sons. I mean why is it that I struggle with certain sins of anger or whatever? I mean I guarantee you it's at least parts of it are because of my parents. Parts of it just because I'm a Sinful, rotten person by nature, <laughs> um, but part of it is because that's the way I was raised, default setting. I saw my mom, dad react situations; I react, you know, all the ways I said I never would. <laughs> so, yeah,
1: yeah. I think in one of C.S. Lewis's books, he talks about a perspective from God's eyes that a man who is uh, has inclines towards violence for him to. Uh, have gotten through a day without a violent act or, or murder is greater in God's eyes than a man for whom it's very simple to be kind to people who's kind all day. So, yeah, it, it's God judges and, um, according to what you see, our tendencies are
0: is Yeah, that's in um, uh, C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. I think he's a chapter on Prudence, in which he talks about that. Yeah, that issue right there. And, and and he says in other places, you know, it's, it's no more a sin to have a, maybe a natural feeling of anger than it is to have had a bad digestion, he says. <laughs> he says, it's, it's what do you do with that issue. That's what Jesus is concerned about, primarily, anyway. So, yeah?
1: Why do you think Lot was willing to exchange one sin for
0: another? Man, I wish I knew that. I, you know, a question that I have that even goes further beyond that is in the, I think it's the book of Jude that says, you know, Lot's righteous soul was tormented. I'm like, Righteous? That guy's a creep, man, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, he was willing to give his daughters away, you know, for for rape uh, because of that. Why was that? I don't know. Um, Was it because of the, truly the high law of hospitality was such that, in his mind, it was greater to break that than it was to, you know, what would happen to his daughters? That's possible. Given the cultural low view of women, that's possible to me. That, that he viewed these men's worth, now wrongly, I think completely unbiblically, he viewed these men's worth as, as greater than his own daughters, which tells you how screwed up and how impacted we can be by culture. That's my guess, but I'm bothered by that same issue. I think Lot's a big creep, if you ask me. Because <laughs> I've got two little girls, and I, man, I'd do about anything to protect them. So, yeah. I
1: was just going to say on that same issue that you probably knew the men... Wouldn't want his daughters. If you look at the result of his offering, they turned on him
0: as opposed to saying, okay, you know, we'll take the daughters. He said they said the response was be worse for you than what we would have done to the mm-hmm. So So was it to buy time or something? I don't know. Yeah, maybe allow him time to get out the back or something, talk. I guess that's possible. I no, seriously, I don't know. Yeah. What do you
1: say to somebody. Well, if you're quoting Leviticus, then you have
0: to follow all the other random laws in Leviticus. Yeah. And that's where I think it is helpful to to distinguish between uh, moral, ceremonial, and civil laws. We are freed from the law. Sure, we're freed from the penalty of the law. I'm not free from, from holding to the moral law. Now, breaking the moral law, I'm also freed from its consequences, meaning if I'm in Christ... It is by his perfection that he lived the perfect life that's what allows me to be received by God not that I've broken these three laws or those four laws so the moral law all that to say the moral law I am incumbent to hold to the moral law okay what i mean i mean by moral law i mean go through the 10 commandments okay. these are moral requirements i ought not murder someone unjustly take someone's life that's a moral expectation that Jesus still requires of me as his follower there are ceremonial laws I have to sacrifice an animal. New Testament's very clear. There is one sacrifice, a book of Hebrews, one sacrifice has been made forever, for all time. Don't do it. Not just you don't have to, don't make another sacrifice. Why? Because then you're saying Jesus's wasn't sufficient. The God-man's death was not good enough. I need to do more. So ceremonial laws have been ended, stopped. Civil laws, Ought we kill someone who disobeys their parents. That, that was a civil law. No, we don't live in a theocracy. We lived in a democracy. We ought not carry that out in a democracy. That was the way they carried out in a theocracy. Totally different civil structure than us. So I'm not fighting for a theocracy because the only person I trust to rule the world died about 2,000 years ago and then was raised. So no one's good enough to rule it perfectly. But moral laws we are still incumbent to hold to, and the New Testament affirms many of them time and time again what those moral laws are. That's a great question, though. Yeah. I maybe read that one. I thought you said that, that Toavah was a ceremonial No. Toavah referred to moral and ceremonial laws. Toavah meant prohibit, um, abomination, something along those lines. It meant don't. Don't do it. Since it's still
1: part of the moral law, that's why it carries over. So if it was just ceremonial or civil, then that's been stopped?
0: Well, it's like this um, I am prohibited from speeding. Okay, that's a civil law. Now, there are moral consequences. I do it and I know I'm not. I'm, I'm breaking law because God tells me to obey my, you know, my government. But there's a prohibition. It, it's Toavah to break civil laws. It's Toavah to break moral laws. It's Toavah to break ceremonial laws. Does that make sense? What they're saying is look, Toavah was used to refer to ceremonial. Therefore, everything's ceremonial. He say, no, 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 no. There's, there are moral laws and it's Toavah to break them too, but those are eternally binding. Civil laws come and go. Ceremonial laws change. Again, the example of sacrifice. So that's a great question. Um, I wish we could go more. We need to, I need to cut out for the sake of time. You guys, thank you for being here. Appreciate it. Have a wonderful week.